You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome back to the Projection Booth. This is the third in a series of episodes where I'm covering movies from the South by Southwest 2021 Festival. On today's episode, I am talking about three films, The Spine of Night, Swan Song, and Alien on Stage. First up, The Spine of Night. It's a sci-fi fantasy film featuring the voices of Patton Oswalt, Lucy Lawless, Richard E. Grant, and many, many more. It's kind of a throwback to rotoscoped films of the past, like Heavy Metal or Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. The first time I watched it, I had no idea what was going on. I was just watching the animation and kind of letting the movie just wash over me. Going back and watching it a second time, I realized that it's got a pretty good story about an evil force that goes through several time periods. I had the pleasure of speaking with co-directors Morgan Galen King and Philip Chalat about The Spine of Night. Morgan, I'll start with you. How did you get involved in filmmaking? I went to college thinking I would make art and films. And um, I did a lot of like, you know, it was right in the transition from like VHS or SVHS over to like digital nonlinear timelines. So I, I actually did one semester where we we're still literally cutting tape because uh, I, I guess I'm old now. But after school, I just didn't have access to any equipment. And I ended up mostly just doing graphic design for the, you know, a decade and a half. And it wasn't really until I was just felt like I'd been doing that forever and it wasn't going anywhere that I was like, it's time to revisit my, my first love. Uh, but even then, you know, I still didn't have access to financing or a crew or anything. So going back to like the animation styles that I loved, like the, um, you know, the Ralph Bakshi and heavy metal and like that style, I was like, well, rotoscoping is a thing I can do in my tiny row house apartment because the backgrounds don't have to exist. Like I just need the motion capture. So, or motion reference. So yeah, it sort of was born out of that. Like I finally, you know, it was kind of a means to an end, but then it, it, you know, as the workflow improved, the short films improved, and then eventually Phil stumbled upon uh, Exordium. And that's where we sort of kicked this off. I also went to film school or started in film school. Although when I was in film school, I wasn't in it for production. I was in it for what we call cinema studies. So that meant we just watched a lot of movies, read a lot of theory, 
And at a certain point, I mean, I loved it. I love, I mean, I love to watch movies and I love reading about movies, but you know, as I'm sure other cinema studies students can attest to, like at a certain point you're like, Oh, I I'm being asked to read more about movies than I am about to, to watch them. You know, it's just a, so, so whatever. I, and I got out of cinema studies or graduated and, um, ended up with an internship at a small independent film studio or film company in New York. And even then I wasn't really sure that I wanted to go into filmmaking. It just felt like it might be a little bit of an odd fit for me. Cause I don't know, like personality wise, I wasn't sure if I was suited for it, but I started um, there. They had me do script coverage. So I wrote script coverage on everything that came into that office. So it was like hundreds and hundreds of scripts and script coverage, of course, being you read the scripts and you write a summary and say whether it's good or not. That was more than anything else, probably like the most effective part of my film school education was just reading tons and tons and tons of bad scripts. And at a certain point you read enough of them and you're like, Oh, I could, I can do this. Like I could, I could, I could do this at least as bad as these people. If then they're not, they're not ashamed to have done it. So that's where I started screenwriting. And for that sort of transitioned into the early portion of my directing career. And then that I've sort of gone back and forth between directing and screenwriting. And then our, I mean, as Morgan said, our, our paths crossed because I saw his short film exordium and, and thought that it was amazing and was at a moment in my career when I was, as I have been many times, deeply frustrated with the way that the film industry works. So I just thought, screw it, I'm going to go off with Morgan and figure out how to make this crazy animated fantasy film. <laughs> so that's, to connect the two, that's that's how that happened. So where did The Spine of Night come from? Where did the idea come from? And, and how did you two work together to kind of bring this to life? You know, as a vehicle, really, to learn the rotoscoping process. Like, I was trying to reverse engineer it from you know, the, the Bakshi films. And so, you know, I needed a setting that was, you know, aesthetically suitable to doing that work, you know, so it's sort of a chicken or the egg situation. And so I, uh, you know, the long, it, rotoscoping is a very slow process. And so it gave me a lot of time to really, like you, you pay attention to, to for days to every little detail because you're drawing it so many times. I think just along the way over doing several short films, like, the seeds of ideas of where, you know, where did this helmet come from? You know, what was the story behind this particular suit of armor? You know, like those sorts of things became part of like the story I told myself while I was working. And so then when Phil approached me and we wanted to build this up into a bigger world, I think there's a lot of like little ideas that we are able to, uh, you know, just dive in together and really blow up into a much uh, more comprehensive setting. The world of Spine of Night is so rich. So many ideas goes so many places that you don't expect it to go as you're watching it. I mean, what were some of your inspirations for it? We both brought a lot of our own favorite things, but I think also we have a lot of overlapping favorite things. So certainly, um, I mean, I think there's this, I can see a lot of things. I mean, we both are huge fans of John Milius's Conan. I mean, I think that was a formative work for both of us in like how we wanted to like build out a world. And um, that movie leaves so much to your imagination. Um, I mean, there's a lot on screen, but there's so much that you just have to infer of, you know, of how the civilization revolves around, you know, like the different cults and the different Kings and, you know, the different mysticisms. And I, I think that's what we were really looking for is to like take the ideas and leave them with enough space around them that an audience could infer or fill in the world to make it even bigger than what we were able to put on screen. In my mind, I imagine that you had these actors in a big room or a small room, but a room and you've got them with like a little bit close to what the costumes look like, maybe. And you're just, directing them, doing it, capturing it all, and then the rotoscope process begins. I mean, is that pretty close? That is almost, your, your imagination is very sharp. That's, that's, almost, that's almost exactly what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, down to the costumes, like we had to, you know, the costumes were pre-designed by Morgan, and then we had to construct approximations of the shapes of the costumes with like black marker lines that would sort of um, represent different colors on the costumes or whatever they were, and then put the actors. So, I mean, the, the act, our, our voice cast, 
uh, you know, like Joe Manganiello and Pat Oswald, they they were not in the warehouse when we when we did that. That those were like what we call our motion reference people. And then later on, we brought them on. So if your imagination included stars in our weird warehouse, it was it was it was, it was not. It was just the, the motion reference guys. But other than that, yeah, and like riding. Um, a lot of great footage of whenever somebody had to ride a horse, we put them on a yoga ball and like made them like ride, you know, to the horizon. It's really, it's a really great footage, raw footage of our poor actors riding yoga balls. It's great. It's a lot of fun. I did not picture Patton Oswald there. I definitely <laughs> didn't picture Lucy Lawless there completely nude. <laughs> was your model, was she nude the entire time? We had a, a custom bodysuit. It's just a lot of acting, like physical action that she had to do in the role. That it just felt like you know, to just to, and just to keep like her bone jewelry affixed to her. You know, so yeah, she was. I mean, it, it, I'm sure she still wasn't uh, super excited about wearing a, <laughs> a bodysuit covered in foam jewelry, bone jewelry on it. But she's a champion. When do the voice actors come in? Are they doing their stuff first or are they doing their stuff after everything is done, after the motion is captured and the animation is? So unlike most animation processes, we brought our voice cast in at the very end. They were able to, I mean, I think part of the reason we were able to attract the cast that we did is we were able to show them what the movie was going to look like, right? Like we could go to, to Patton or Joe or Lucy and show them at that point very much what the movie was going to look like so they could understand what they were doing, uh, which was useful in the one sense, difficult for them because of course it means that a lot of the timing of the lines is, is not set in stone. It's, but just not super malleable. Regardless, they all did an amazing job of like modulating their performances to get the emotionality while still keeping the timing of the, of the lines. But anyway, yeah, to your question, they, they came on, you know, towards the end within like about the last year of, of our animation was when it brought them in. I know animation is a very painstaking process. So when did you guys even start this project? We wrote it in very early 2014, like January, February, and then filmed the motion reference for, I think it was five weeks in late March. Then there's some editing. Like we have a, you know, we edited the full film in live action before we even began trying to start the animation because you don't want to end up in a situation where you're having to cut animated footage but overall yeah i mean it's like in two weeks it will have been seven years since we started down this road what else are you doing at the time i mean do you guys have other jobs that you're working on at the same time Phil uh, does a lot. I do. Yeah. I did nothing but this. <laughs> I'm a screenwriter by trade, so writing other you know screenwriting jobs, and I I made another indie feature in the middle of having made this movie. <laughs> this movie, like a lot, poor Morgan has you know seen a lot of pro- my projects sort of like kind of like begin you know go through the whole process and then be done with all while he's still stuck on not stuck on Spine of Night while he's attending to it it with care and and uh, passion. Morgan, did Phil let you outside or did he kind of keep you chained to a desk or? I think he generally encouraged me to take time for like my mental health and stuff, but I mostly ignored it and just worked, you know, waking to sleeping for a really most of it, you know. I was going to say that chain, you you forged that chain yourself. This was was all of my own doing for sure. Although, on the other hand, we're doing this now and not in 2025 when it would have been done otherwise. It, it was a almost a is a is obsession project and a, a term because it's, it's it feels like it transcended beyond passion into, you know, I was halfway up Mount Everest and I couldn't come back down, so I just had there's nowhere to go but to the peak of the mountain. Tell me about that voice cast because that is just incredible. The level of talent that you managed to snag for this. They are incredible and just so I mean, so nice to work with, and so brought so much creativity and emotion to the to the parts. Uh, I mean, we we were curatorial in terms of who we approached to do roles and tried to think of like people who would get what this is because it's a you know it's a relatively niche thing to say. Oh, we made a ultra violent psychedelic naked fantasy film. Please come do a voice for it. Not an offer they get every day. So so like Joe Manganiello was an obvious pick for us both because he's suited for the part and because that feels very much like his thing like he loves D and he loves sort of extreme genre art similar Patton oswald you know he he has a self-professed love for 
let's just call it nerdery in general. And then Lucy, she's a genre star, like she's a genre royalty. So she just, she felt like an obvious choice um, for us to go to for, for Zod and was just so lovely to work with. And as I said, like just brought so much to the role in really like, it's amazing to work on a project this long and then have somebody come on at the end and sort of show you who the character is ultimately. And like, she really did that for, for Zod in a way that was, you know, really incredible. One thing that really brings everything together as well is the music. Can you tell me about how the score came together for it? Well, we'd had some of the pre-recorded music in mind, even at the script level. I mean, like, uh, I was so excited to get to use, like, there's that Twin Sister Moon song that we use while the, the young lovers are wandering through the ruined city. And, like, I mean, when I was writing it, you know, that section, that was, like, the music I had on specifically for that. So, I was like, some of the choices are, were very specific that way. And I'd worked with Ice Dragon, who does the closing track. They'd worked on um, the short film, the previous short film I'd done. But uh, Phil did a lot with finding the uh, composers who did the score. Because Heavy Metal, the, the, the movie, and I guess also the music a little bit, is such an inspiration in the film, there was a lot of discussion about the soundtrack. Like, we were, you know, do you, do you just get Heavy Metal acts to do it? Like, do you lean into that type of music? What do you do? So we ended up in a place where, you know, we really liked the idea of having each section of the film use a different composer's music. Um, so we, we leaned into that. And then moved away from guitar-driven stuff and more towards uh, this strange subgenre of music called dungeon synth. I don't know if you're aware of it, but a lot of the acts in, who did music for us are identify as dungeon synth. Which I, Morgan, how would you explain what dungeon synth is <laughs> other than like fantasy synth music? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's like a a genre of like lo- lo-fi, creepy soundtrack music. If like. <laughs> yeah. PC adventure games from the like early nineties, like turned, you know, became, you know, grew up into their own like evil mature art form. It's, it's, it's a fascinating subgenre. When did you finish this project? Because I'm very curious if COVID affected you at all with this. Uh, COVID affected us only ever so slightly in the, in the recording of our voice cast. So already we were basically had like a, what I've called like a virtual animation studio already, like our animators. I mean, we've never met in person. They're all just at their desks where we hired them. So it was really only for recording like Patton and Lucy and Richard where they had to, you know, I was on zoom with them and they were in a, some other place and we did it that way but other than that it was i don't want to call it covid proof but it, it didn't prove to be a huge hiccup along the way so you haven't ever seen this with an audience yet that's the other hiccup is that we've never we've, we've never seen it with an audience yeah and i'm not sure when we'll have the chance to but but yeah we haven't south by is your first is your world premiere it is yeah oh that's fantastic do you know what you're working on next or are you just going to try to get through this well, I mean, we definitely have talked about, we have, I'm going to say, 12 Google Docs of projects that we've sort of been like tinkering with over the seven years it took to make this one, just as as ideas come to us, and they've sort of been permutated uh, over the time. And, you know, some of them, you know, are sort of maybe tied to this, some are very different ideas, so we've got to, you know, I think we're sort of going to wait and see how it shakes out and how you know, if people like it and want to see more of it, or if they just want us to create other weird horror fantasy worlds for them to explore. I mean, I feel like there's a lot we could do after this. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Well, guys, I love the spine of night. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for putting this together because like you said, I haven't seen anything like this in so many years and it was just it was a little bit of like nostalgia, but then mixed with new stuff. And so it was just such a trip to be able to enjoy this and best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Thank I'm you. so glad you liked it. Thank you. Yeah, that's so awesome to hear. Swan Song is an indie film from director Todd Stevens of Another Game Movie. It stars Udo Kier as Pat Pitzenberger, a hairdresser who's living in a retirement home. He's given the chance to come out of retirement for one more gig, doing the hair of the local matriarch played by Linda Evans, who has recently passed away. 
He has a rather complicated relationship with her as well as his former assistant, played by Jennifer Coolidge. It's a really heartfelt movie, and I don't usually go for those, but I have enjoyed everything that I've seen Stevens do so far, and I recommend this. I really couldn't believe that I had the opportunity to finally speak with Udo Kier for the show and was thrilled to even have 15 minutes of his time to hear about his experience of making Swan Song. You have been in so many things over the years, and I'm very curious, what have been some of your favorite roles to play? As an actor, when you play, you, they don't offer you main roles. That is not the way it goes. So, But for me... Besides uh, with working with Fassbinder, Herzog, and Wim Wenders, when I did uh, 1973, I met somebody in an airplane, and he wanted my telephone number and asked me what I do. And I said, I'm an actor. And I was a young actor. And of course, when I said I'm an actor, I had already my photograph in my hand and held uh, uh, under his face. And he said, oh, interesting, give me your number. And I said, who are you? And he said, my name is Paul Morrissey. I make movies for Andy Warhol. And I said, oh, yeah, Andy Warhol was uh, at that time quite uh, on the way of being famous. And, and he made a film, Trash and Flesh, and they didn't, in Germany, they were not allowed to edit it, to cut it, because it was art. So it was the first man with an erection on screen, but it wasn't cut. That was it. And a couple of weeks later, I got a call. Hey, it's Paul from New York. You remember? In a plane. I said, yes. He said, I'm doing for Carlo Ponti a film in 3D, Frankenstein. And I have a little role for you. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. What do I play? And he says, Frankenstein. I said, wow. So I played Frankenstein, and it was for Carlo Ponti, a double production, Frankenstein and then Dracula. And I'm not supposed to be Dracula, but then it was amazing. Fellini was shooting at Shinichita, and I went to the canteen at the last day of Frankenstein. And I know Andy Warhol had said everybody is famous for 15 minutes. So my 15 minutes were gone. And then Paul Morrissey came in and said, well, I guess we have a German Dracula. And I saw somebody else. I said, who? He said, you. But you have to lose 10 pounds in a week. So I didn't eat anymore. I said, no problem. And I didn't eat uh, only uh, salad leaves and water. And when we start shooting, I had to sit in a wheelchair. So Dracula sits in a wheelchair talking to Victoria the Seeker. So that was uh, that was important for me, this film. Then a lot, a lot of films, and I met a lot, a lot of people, like uh, Lars von Trier, when he presented his first film at the film festival in Germany, and we met. And then I made, uh, over the last 20 years, many, many films, 10 or 11 films with him. And like that, or I was in Berlin and a young director came. I mean, I didn't know he was a director. He said, hello, my name is Gus von Sand, and I have a little film here I made for $20,000, Malanoche, but... I'm making a film with Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix, my own private Idaho, and I have a role for you. And I said, oh, they, all, they all talk at festivals. They're lonely. But no, we wrote each other letters. There was no fax machine yet. He brought me to America, and I made my first American production in America. I became a member of the union, and I came back for the premiere, and I stayed with a girlfriend, Anna. And Anna said, why don't you stay here? I said, no. After the evening progressed, I said, why not? So I got myself a little apartment, a little car. And uh, I now I'm living here in a library, a former library in Palm Springs, built by Abel Frey and with a lot of trees and palm trees. And, uh, yeah, I'm making... Uh, making movies, and uh, 
after this year, uh, I was very lucky and also unlucky. The luck was that I played in Bacurau and The Painted Bird, but both films were not in the cinema, only on the computer. And then I got a call and a script from Todd, Todd Stevens, and said, I'm doing a film and I would like uh, a called Swan Song and I would like that you uh, read the script. So he sent me the script, I read it twice and I liked it. And then he came and we talked about the movie and then we did a little crowdfunding and got some money, he got some money to start the movie and we made the movie. And why I like it was that playing always in Bacurau, uh, which I liked to, to play it also in uh, in the painted bird, evil uh, strong man to play an uh, older man in a retirement home who was once a famous hairdresser. So I said, okay, let's do the film, but please let's start in the retirement home. And I want to shoot as chronological as we can. So we went to the retirement home. I stayed two days on the set alone before shooting. I wanted to get used to the bed and see everything in the room, have my nightmares. And then the camera came and we started to film. And then uh, we went to uh, the town, to Sandusky and in Ohio. And uh, I made the movie day to day. Everything came, the the green suit and uh, uh, but it, it wasn't I didn't play I I just had a good uh, I explained script and a lot of talk with Todd who even know Pat when he was a young man uh, and I thought I met friends of the real Pat and they told me some funny stories and movements and things so I adopted that or saw pictures, how he held his hand. So I did this too. But it wasn't acting. Now I have to do this. There wasn't any uh, big acting number because the, the story was so strong of uh, an old man who actually decided to die there. All of a sudden gets a kick to go back. And especially they offered him $25,000 uh, a shack to do the hair of the richest woman played by Linda Evans who is one of the most professional actresses I ever worked with so that was uh, that was a good thing that uh, and Jennifer Coolidge also very good so we made the film and I was uh, very, very a couple of weeks ago only I saw the uh, film, he sent me the film, and I liked it very much. I saw it twice, and I thought, oh, my God, why can I not see that on the big screen? And then when I heard it goes to the festival, I said, oh my God, another festival, another film, like I just had uh, in Sundance, The uh, Blazing World, also on the computer, all the interviews on the computer. And now I have a, a swan song again in Austin. Of course, I'm not going there because it's, it's, it makes me sad not to be able to see it on a big screen. When it comes to playing a role, not necessarily like a Pat, but when you're getting to, into other characters, how do you do that? Do you write a backstory? Is it uh, a prop? I know like Peter Falk said, it's all about a hat. Like once he finds the right hat, then he is the character. How do you find your characters? Well, I played a few times Adolf Hitler, but uh, when I play Adolf Hitler, I always think of Charlie Chaplin, the dictator, where he kicks the world, which is and I have played even uh, in the film with Tarantino, a, a grindhouse, a Nazi in Rob Zombies. But I have never, I never played a serious Nazi. It's always comedy. And I don't think I would play a serious Nazi. They offered me 
uh, horrible people. I mean, characters were, who were horrible. I never did this. I, I played Adolf Hitler a few times in Iron Sky, number one and number two, but I never, I never played that. No, I don't have anything. I have internal things. Nobody knows. For example, I make a movie and I put a picture of my real mother in my jacket. But this picture nobody ever sees. There are situations in the film where all of a sudden my hand goes. And that, yeah, I do that. Sandusky is about an hour and 20 minutes away from me. I've driven through there many times on the way to um, the amusement park. What was it like shooting in Sandusky? I'm sure that's one of the most um, just amazing places that you've ever been at. I went there because I took it all for granted because that was my background. That wasn't I had discovered it. And there was one big street. There was the theater. There was uh, the cinema. There was a second-hand store. The people, they heard that we were filming. They were really greeting me. I was really sitting there having a glass of white wine. And no, I became part of it. And I didn't come with a trailer, getting out of the trailer and have people doing makeup. There was no makeup. I just I wanted to be just there and meet people and do that. That's how I did it. Did you go to Cedar Point while you were there? Uh, I didn't go up, no. <laughs> I just went by boat. I went by it. I did not know. That would have been a bit uh, crazy. No, I... Was in my concentration of what I why I came there for. You talked a little bit about Lars von Trier, and you have worked with him so many times. What is that relationship like between you two? Well, when he met me, he met me right away. Uh, the grandfather of his child, godfather. So oh, that was after the first film, and he said to me because in Germany it's always everybody wants. I need to be the uh, godfather because for the gifts, Christmas, school. And Lars said, Udo, it's not for the gifts, but if my wife and I die tomorrow in a car accident, you are responsible for my child. I thought, wow, I haven't seen it that way. So I, uh, yeah, she came when she was 21. She came to visit me in Los Angeles. And I came to Palm Springs, and now she is married and has children herself. I like to work with him. The first film was the biggest role I had in Medea, a script by Carl Theodore Dreyer. I uh, played Jason, the husband of Medea, and then I was in all the films, but the films were most of the time uh, American stories, and I don't speak American accent, so I had always... In breaking the waves, I hardly speak, and you know, it's like, but uh, I like him. I learned from him, he says that to everybody, or just even stars, don't act. And I mean, when I say stars, we all work for the same money, and we had a, a, our dinner, and it was Lombokol, Ben Gizara, James Kahn, Nicole Kidman. Jean-Marc Bars, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, Udo Kier on one table. And everybody got no gun, and there was no star system. We got all the same car. We got everything the same. And I love him very, very, very much, and I might work with him uh, this year. I don't know. I've really loved the voice work that you've done over the years. I have to tell you that we actually did a special episode on um, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Your turn as Professor Pericles was fantastic. I liked that, yes. It was uh, the first time. And I did uh, uh, also an evil guy, but I also played it evil because it was a Call of Duty. where I played this evil guy who creates the perfect soldier. I like that. I did also, what did I do? Yeah, I did the voiceover for a Hitler film, Hitler in Hollywood, and I was just doing the narration of it. Yeah, but Pericles was nice. I like that, the Professor Pericles, yeah. 
you talked about how the pandemic has affected you not being able to actually see these movies in theaters that you've made. How else has it affected you? What have you been doing during the pandemic? Uh, Sinking. And uh, I collect art, I collect furniture, but all I have, you cannot see them now, it's all designer furniture, Eames, Saranen, George Nelson, uh, Anna Jacobson, all what I wanted. And I realized uh, during this epidemic that I have much too much, which I don't need. So I realized you, you clear that you say, why do I have this painting there? I don't need that here because I collect modern art also. Uh, so there, uh, I had time to think, a lot of time to think. And I have, I'm a lucky man that I have my ranch and my barn in the desert and I speak to trees. I give them water, which I translate of giving life to my trees. And no, I'm okay. I got my two vaccination and uh, I'm okay. Do you have your next role lined up already? I have, uh, well, there's one German film uh, with a friend. Uh, I wanted to marry her, but she didn't. One of the few women I wanted to marry. And she made a film years ago called Wolf, which was in Sandance, a woman who lives with a wolf. And she makes a new movie and she wants me to play. It depends when it is. I don't do anything in April, May, uh, June maybe I start whenever. Let's see how it goes. Mr. Kier, I'm glad that you're staying safe and staying healthy. And it was such a pleasure speaking with you. You too, Mike. See you, Mr. White. One thing I do need to know, who's got their spacesuits? I haven't. Nobody move. We're just normal people, aren't we? Normal people don't do things like this. No. How the hell has this made it to the West End for one night only? I had absolutely no understanding as to why we're going to the West End or how it even happened. I can just about see... Oh my god, how are they going to do that? We all thought it was going to be another pantomime. And then somebody came up with this idea. I'm Luke and I wrote it. Dave is my dad and he's also the director. Uh, my mum is also playing with me. Calling Antarctica Traffic Control. And my granddad uh, designed the set. Quiet chamber. Quiet chamber. Drivers involved, supervisors. Engineers. With an articulated mouth. Every alternative I've come up with, I hope, has done what Ridley Scott would have wanted to do, but in a more basic format. I think they did uh, Robin Hood production the year before. You yeah. brought me up on Alien, didn't you? Yes, don't say what age. <laughs> so tell them what age I let you watch it. Robin Hood has quite a sort of Christmassy panto feel, and Alien just, just doesn't. Ah! I still can't stop laughing about it, really. I think it's gone up to London. <laughs> Made every single dream of mine come true. What's happened? Has everybody had a lobotomy since last time or something? What's going on? Nobody has got their lines going smoothly. This is our last chance to get this right. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> I'm going to the toilet in a minute. <laughs> It's quite scary. Somebody says to you, oh, there's a uh, Wiltshire and Dorset bus company have done an amateur dramatic production of Alien and it's coming to stage. You think, yeah. Yeah. You're doing fine, come on. I'm feeling sick. Oh my god. This is the big one. 15 minutes. Oh, shut up. Now's the moment. I'll go wrong. Go wrong. wasn't deliberate um, comedy. I think we might be on our way to start The final movie I want to talk about in today's episode is Alien on Stage. 
years ago. I was in Chicago and saw a flyer for a stage production of Aliens as a rock musical, where I remember Newt was being portrayed by a hand puppet, which kind of makes sense, what with Ripley carrying her around, at least in the last third of the film. I would have loved to have seen that, just as I would have loved to have seen an entire production of Alien on stage as performed by a group of bus drivers from Dorset. I spoke with co-directors Daniel Kummer and Lucy Harvey about their documentary, which covers the original production, as well as the production of Alien on Stage for the West End. Stick around to the end of the interview, where I pretty much gush about how much I like this one. Danielle and Lucy, I'm very curious, how did you two meet, and how did you decide to work on this Alien on Stage project? We met, actually, on a fiction feature film set many moons ago, and it was quite a a baptism of fire. It was a very low-budget film where there was a lot of... The crew really bonded on the fact that it was very disastrous and not very organized. (laughs) It was like being through a war together, and everybody that was on the crew working for free in this ridiculous set of conditions we just became the firmest of friends and quite a few members of that crew ended up coming to my house regularly two moved in one moved next door became a bit of a little gang after that film that was the englishman wasn't it i think yeah and that was yeah it's gonna be called the mechanic and then it's called the englishman and that was in 2005 six 2007. 2007. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Have you worked together before, uh, after that, before the Alien on Stage doc? Not really. Danielle's done stuff for me, actually, because I'm a little bit of a freelance entrepreneur, and I've done a couple of things where Danielle's filmed a couple of short bits and bobs for me, haven't you? And I've also assisted you doing props. I was remembering the other day doing prop styling and bits and bobs, and we both had our hand in many different roles, and we've kind of helped each other out along the way, and yeah. We lived together for quite a few years. I think Danielle even did my tax for me in a couple of years running. Now that is a true friend. (laughs) (laughs) I paid her. (laughs) Been friends for a long time. How did you hear about the Alien on Stage performance? When we lived in London in a shared house, the house that Danielle came and lived in later, um, we became friends with a group of jazz musicians and one of them was called Andy Button. He had a girlfriend whose family was based in Dorset. So he traveled from London to Dorset to visit his new girlfriend. And that's where he was just minding his own business, doing his shopping in a supermarket and saw the poster that the bus drivers had put up there probably a week beforehand or something. And it said alien on stage and amateur production. And he just went mental. (laughs) He took a photograph of it and came back and just told everybody and then followed their blog. And anyone that went to his house, he'd show them the blog and show them the rehearsal tapes and just was so excited. And we all just got very, very excited about this faraway group of people doing this very bizarre thing that we became obsessed over. When did you decide this has to be a documentary? So Lucy came back from going to see the show for one time and then she basically convinced about 10 of us that we needed to go back and watch it the, the following time, the following week when they were doing it again. So we went down in a minibus and saw the show and there was a discussion about bringing the bus drivers from Dorset to maybe do the show in London because the show hadn't been that well received. They hadn't got the, you know, the adulation that they wanted from the Dorset performance. Um, Lucy managed to speak to some friends and through contacts and somebody said, hey, why don't you try the Leicester Square Theatre? This seems right up their street. They seemed really keen. They were like, yeah, this sounds great. And based on that, at that point, there was a discussion that, wow, this really should be a documentary. This should be filmed. This should be a film. And then we were sitting in our kitchen one day and we just realized, well, who should make it? We should make it. We should do this film. So we did. (laughs) Even though we had no money, no equipment. I didn't even have a camera at the time. I was a filmmaker, but doing kind of bits bits of editing and filming. But it was, um, yeah, I didn't have my own equipment at that time. And so I was, I think I was doing a job with a charity and I managed to convince them very kindly. They let me borrow a camera just to take down there. Somebody else let us borrow their Zoom recorder. I taught Lucy how to do the sound recording. So we just literally kind of didn't let any of those obstacles stop us. We just went, let's just do it. Yeah. Got on the coach and met them and just started filming. One thing that I don't think translates to U.S. audiences too well is the idea of pantomime. Can you tell me what a pantomime is? Because there's a discussion of that at the beginning, but I think it's still kind of unclear to uh, us foreigners. 
I don't know where it comes from, maybe old musical tradition in the UK, possibly Victorian, maybe a bit before. Could be even come from like the Shakespearean times. I don't know. I'm sort of plucking at my general guessing of, of theatre history. But it's something that happens every year and every town has their own pantomime. And it's a tradition to go to the pantomime around Christmas time, but it can go right into January. And the stories of a pantomime is usually based on some famous folk tale or fairy tale. And the town usually includes kind of folk and references, folk culture and references of their town. And there's lots of cross-dressing and it's all very silly and it's very high camp and people boo the baddies and cheer the goodies and sing along to songs and it's the just, one theatre experience where the audience is encouraged to shout out and get uh-huh. involved and shout boo and he's behind you. The hero is usually a male hero played by a young girl dressed in a sexy male's outfit. The heroine can often be uh, a man dressed as a woman that falls in love with the the hero who's actually what? a female. And then there's always a pantomime dame who's an old bloke with a massive dress, usually with huge knockers <laughs> and big makeup. And there's these kind of archetypes that have to appear in it to be a pantomime. And uh, that's what they did before they decided to do Alien, which is why it's even more brilliant. Why do you think that Alien wasn't a hit in the hometown? Why did it make such a hit in London instead? Just the wrong audience. It's a very sleepy retirement village with a very a very small population. I think it's like a population of six or seven thousand people in Wimborne. Um, they may have publicized it to the wider Dorset, but they probably just didn't tap into any sort of geeky, you know, blogs or there there was actually a Comic Con in Dorset. And I think if they were given it a great deal of thought, maybe they could have tapped into that market. But I think they just advertise it the same way they would advertise a pantomime thinking that people would see the poster and go, wow, alien. But it just didn't hit the right note at all. And people are used to them doing pantomime. So as you can see in the film, Robin Hood's quite Christmassy, which is the pantomime they did last year, and alien just really isn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, obviously when you're in London where there's a few million population and the whole culture around theatre, it's a very different prospect. How much were you involved in the idea of bringing them from Dorset down to London and having them set up in the West End? fundamentally (laughs) it was just the fluke basically of genuinely loving them and wishing that everybody could have the experience that we had just had having been literally a handful of people to see their show and being really sad that they'd spent a year building it all and what an incredible achievement for this very broad range of people with very differing abilities to just make it work somehow I think my friend just went everyone's got to see this I was like well how how do we make that happen <laughs> it just started from a small idea like we have easily get 100 friends to come and see their show if we rented a small hall you know somewhere in our local area to somebody spotting my post on Facebook and saying get in contact with a friend of a friend because they had a bar in Soho and Soho and the West End and all the theatre kind of people kind of mix. And um, yeah, it's just a, a strange fluke of a contact through a friend through Facebook connected us with the, a, a West End theatre. Had either of you made a documentary before or is this your first time? First one. I've done short films, short documentaries, and I did do a longer documentary about 10 years ago in South Africa, but it was more personal stuff and it didn't really go go anywhere. And it was just kind of finding my feet with stuff. So this is our first one that's like, wow, this is this is something people are going to really enjoy. This has got legs. This is, yeah, let's put it out there. What were some of the biggest challenges making this film for you? Not having a clear idea of where the money was going to come from mm-hmm. um, and trying to figure out how we were going to get some money to, to kind of take the time so we could focus on getting it done. That took a while and that um, that was a bit of a challenge. But I think then when we figured out actually Kickstarter is a really great way and we should hopefully have enough of an appeal that we can raise money that way, that was really, yeah, Kickstarter is such a wonderful thing. And we're so grateful to all our backers for for giving us the opportunity to do this. Yeah, it was really, really great that that came about. Having not made, as I said, I've done shorter films before, having not made a really a feature film, just kind of, you know, 
figuring out how to do it, figuring out how it's going to work, what are the best ways to do it and how, yeah, how the whole process comes together, you know, and wearing lots of different hats as well. It can be difficult. You can't just focus on one job because you've got to do lots of different other things. Can That can be a bit of a challenge too. How were the actual folks that were in the production, were they flattered that you wanted to make this film about them? What was their reaction to all of this? They love it. There's a mutual, there's a mutual love there from the, from the beginning. They trust us and we took care of them as best we could while we were editing and just made it a celebration of who they are and filled it with all our love and adoration for them. And they, they knew that when they first saw the edit, they, they knew that, you know, they were just said we did them proud basically and we made them look amazing. I don't know. We'll see what happens after South by Southwest because I don't think anyone was expecting it to go this far, and I don't know if they're ready. <laughs> if they're ready for the attention. They seem happy at the moment. <laughs> when was the premiere of the film? When did it first show, and to what audience? It was um, in October to Fright Fest, which is a strange. We were a strange anomaly in a festival that focuses on like gore and horror. But because we cover many bases with our documentary, we seem to have kind of universal appeal to across yeah. the genres. So we we um, were snapped up by Fright Fest because um, we one of the first, maybe we had only applied to a couple of documentary festivals by that point. So they were the first to snap us up and we were so received so well and the reviews we got were so beautiful and well considered that it just, yeah, it, it went better than we could have ever imagined. Did you see this with an audience or was this an online festival? No, that got vetoed. Almost felt like in the cinema and we were very excited and it would have been amazing. And then sadly, like everything, it got post put put online. So that was that was a bit of a tough thing. But it was still amazing and actually more people were able to see it that way and we were really we were still able to connect with the audience through, you know, things like Twitter and so it was it was wonderful. We got an amazing response and that spurred us on to kind of go, Okay, let's try some other ones. South by Southwest, perhaps. Is this your U.S. premiere? Yes. Yes. It is. Yes. That's this fantastic. is our international premiere, so it's only been on Southwest uh, Fright Fest. So this is the first time outside of the UK. How much did you shoot, and how did you end up putting this together? I love the editing process. <laughs> it's just a, it really suits my brain. Once I'd watched all of the footage, my brain just became like an editing machine, and I'd wake up after a night's sleep having imagined a sequence and then just write it all down, take it to Danielle. And then eventually once we got um, another member, team member on board, once we got the money from the Kickstarter, she created a system. So when I watched all the footage, the logging system meant that we could always return to the footage that I'd watched. And it was very easy to share the logging system that, that she created. And then because I don't know how to use editing software, I bought a printer and printed off all of my logging notes and then just had strips of paper that I would just arrange on a board in front of me and organize the scenes like that. And I was kind of got into a very nice system with it. And then I'd hand over, you know, an organized selection of footage. And then um, Danielle and Emily, our other editor, would just pull it out of the timeline and we created the film that way. And then they were able to kind of get creative with it and, We'd sit together and, you know, move it around like a jigsaw puzzle. And it was just, yeah, wonderful. I loved it. What was the reaction from the bus drivers when they finally saw the film for the first time? They really enjoyed it. Yeah, we got a positive response. I think um, I think they were quite taken aback. And I think, well, the thing is what people don't realize is there's been quite a gap between when they filmed it, when we filmed it, sorry, to when, when we got it finished through lack of funding and various things. So, yeah, it's it's been a bit of time. So for them, it's like a time capsule of their life at that moment, which most people don't get to see. Suddenly it's in a documentary in front of you. We were so lucky, actually, because it was February last year, just before lockdown. And we, the film wasn't quite finished, but we had a rough cut. And Lucy was rightly like, let's get them together. Let's go. And we came out and we all met up in Dorset again. So lovely to see them all. And they, yeah, they overwhelmingly loved it. And they were really, really surprised. And I think, yeah, they just said, We've done a great job, which was such a relief because yeah. obviously it's terrifying. <laughs> watching there's, there's so many of them as well that, you know, it's like, yeah, we really wanted to, to, to show them in the great light of who they are. And we, I think, and yeah, they were pleased about that. Also, not knowing that COVID was literally a week away or the restrictions were coming, 
um, it was really fortunate that we kind of got there when we did and we treated it like a premiere for them and got I hired a red carpet and gold stanchions and a velvet rope and made a fake guest list and they arrived like A-list celebrities and we gave them champagne and, you know, really made a huge fuss of them all. And uh, looking back, it was really glad that we did because we haven't had the opportunity to do anything like that since. Have you been able to work on much outside of this over the last few months? I mean, both of you need to have income, so I'm curious what your day jobs are. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I've done bits of editing, um, editing work now and again, but for the most part, this has been the main driving. There's just so much to do, <laughs> and we're a very small team. Um, it's essentially, yeah, just me and Lucy <laughs> doing everything. So there's there's a lot to do. So it's it's taken up a lot of time, but it's you know it's really exciting, and we're so grateful to have to be in this position and to be. Yeah. yeah, just to be taken out to the world. So it's, yeah, it's hard work, well, but it's exciting. I deliberately I deliberately moved to a place where my rent is so incredibly cheap. So I don't have massive overheads and I can just focus on doing this. I just get bits of money every now and then. <laughs> At the moment, I gave up my very busy career in London, doing a couple of different jobs and making enough money to pay London rent, which is very expensive, and uh, just jacked it all in so I could finish the documentary where's the best place for people to keep up with the film in case they miss it at south by twitter instagram facebook but you could also go to our website and join our mailing list and all of the all of the handles are alien on stage doc so alien on stage doc that's our website or twitter or instagram facebook it's dot com for the website yeah but as in alien on stage doc is our name dot yeah. com yeah Lucy and Danielle, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so thank much. You. Lovely. Did, you get, did you watch the screener of the film? Oh, yeah, I loved it. As uh, somebody from over the pond, did you have any problems understanding uh, the regional accent from Dorset? No, not really, not at all. But I watch a lot of, I'm kind of an Anglophile, so I watch a lot of British TV. I'm you know, watching Graham Norton bake off, Great Pottery <laughs> Throwdown, you know, uh, Taskmaster. <laughs> The, the the wide variety of regional accents on our tiny island. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially <laughs> this season on Great Pottery Throwdown. There's a, I can't remember if she's Welsh, but man, she's got a great accent. Is that show good? I, I still don't think about that. I haven't watched it. I really like it. I like it a lot. It, it's kind of funny. One of the hosts breaks down crying almost every single episode. He just gets so touched by the pottery that's being made. He'll start to cry. And yeah, I like it though. And then one of the uh, actresses from Dorsey Girls. Do you mean Dairy Girls? Dairy Girls. Thank you. I knew it wasn't Dorsey. Dorsey is our lot. Dairy is Northern Ireland. Right, right. Yeah. And she's got a pretty strong accent as well. Yeah. The, the Northern Irish, it really is strong. Well, you, you're probably not a average american that we need to think about <laughs> right right i actually yeah, got yeah. somebody didn't want to review it because they said the sound editing was too bad oh i didn't find that at all i was like okay yeah but i, I think thought, it's a polite way of saying i don't understand the accent it, <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. maybe you need subtitles for it i mean I, I do watch everything subbed regardless we do have subtitles that was the one job that we spent ages doing beautiful beautiful <laughs> so it's there yeah there. yeah no, I, I have to tell you both, it is a fantastic documentary, and I was just so happy. And it's one of those things where I put on something, and my wife is usually sitting next to me. She doesn't have a choice in the matter, but she told me mm -hmm. afterwards, she was like, I really enjoyed that. That was a great documentary, and she doesn't say that often. That's, <laughs> That's wonderful. Great. And not that you sh anyone should have a favorite, but who who is your favorite character? Who is your favorite? Oh favorite? gosh, I really liked the guy who's making the props a lot. I really he, found him to be very fascinating, especially just to see the intricacy of what he was doing. Uh, the part where he is setting up the two fishing wires to take the baby alien out of the chest. I really enjoyed that. It was so smart of them, too, to use the Ash character as the alien to recast him since he's out yeah. of the picture. It's very, very smart. And then I can't remember the gentleman's name who basically plays the Yafet Kodo role. He plays um, Parker. He's, right. uh, his name is Mike. He had some things where he sounded exactly like the way that he delivered Kodo's lines was spot on. I was so happy when he's talking about the shares. Yeah. When he's talking about the shares and everything, I was like, wow, that guy's really got it. 
And did you notice he was the only guy that did an American accent? Yes, yes. <laughs> and the fact that they just, you know, that's fine. Just, just do what you like. It's great. Yep. I love, that. I love that. Like, it's a pleasant, pleasant documentary about people that, you know, I was glad there was no like infighting and who's gonna, mm-hmm. you know, stab somebody in the back to get a roll or something. I was like waiting for like waiting for Guffman or something to start, but <laughs> I, yeah, I was tickled pink by it. Oh, that's beautiful. That was the plan. That was the whole idea. And I'm glad you, and I'm glad you uh, feel that way. You two should be very proud of yourselves. And I I wish you the most success in the world because I think a lot of people need to see this. Oh, thank you so much. much. Of course. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad that uh, Zoom didn't kick us off and make me restart a call or anything. Well, that was kind of them. Thank you so much for listening. I may be back tomorrow with more South by Southwest 2021 interviews that I had to set up as the festival went along. I want to thank everybody that's been listening to these. And I really want to thank all of the press folks that helped me set up these interviews, get me the screeners and just do an awesome job of making my South by Southwest 2021 experience. And really my only South by Southwest experience so far, a very pleasant one. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.